So, impeachment. I mean, holy sh**, right? If you want to know WTF is going on right now, well, I've got just the podcast for you. I'm Hayes Brown, a reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News and the host of Impeachment Today, a daily podcast produced in partnership with iHeartRadio. In just 10 to 15 minutes every weekday morning, I'll catch you up on what just happened with the help of other BuzzFeed News reporters to figure out what it all means and give you the context you need to understand WTF is really going on right now. Listen and subscribe to Impeachment Today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I speak openly about it in the book because it's a huge part of, of an athlete's career. And what, what happened to me was, I mean, it was very difficult. It's one of the toughest things that an athlete can go through. Um, I've had shoulder surgery. I went through that. Um, I've been through my fair shares of ups and downs, but this was a big hit. Hi, everyone. Just me again. I'm missing Brian, too, but he will be back for our next episode. It's hard to believe it is our last show of 2017. I think a lot of people are ready to say goodbye to this year. I know I am. But one bright spot of my year was getting to interview tennis player Maria Sharapova. We taped this live at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. Maria's a five-time Grand Slam winner, and she's out with a new memoir called Unstoppable, My Life So Far. So clearly, she's got another book in her with that title. She actually wrote her memoir during the 15 months she recently spent off the court. That's how long she was suspended from tennis. I asked her to explain how that happened. And we actually started by talking about what it was like to come back. Meanwhile, in August, I was in the crowd at Maria's first U.S. Open match since her suspension was lifted. And I wanted to know, what was that night like for her? How did it feel when she walked into Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens to play for a sold-out crowd? I walked into a lot of unknown that night. And... It was very different to what I would usually feel going into a first-round match at a tournament. I felt like there was a lot on the line in that match from the moment that the draw came out, and I saw that I'd be facing, as a wild card, the number two player in the world. Once I knew I'd be facing against her, not only was I playing in the U.S. Open after not competing there for a few years, I was going to play against Simona Halep, and... Just feeling Arthur Ashe Stadium, kind of seeing, hadn't played under like the roof environment, even though the roof was open, but the new structure of the court, it just seemed like almost like a new tournament to me because it had been so long. It was very exciting. It was a long match. It was a long match. It was like <laughs> and I was, two hours and 44 minutes. I was like, but that, who's that's, counting? That's, I am. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say, it was... It I'm was, counting the day after when yeah. I'm like, oh, I feel this part of my body. I was supposed to finish that in two sets. Yeah, and you must have, you must have been exhausted. But, yeah. it, I mean... I know that after the match, and I was very excited to be there that night, so especially knowing I was going to interview you, so that was a a, a real added extra for me. But you told the crowd, quote, behind all these... I always have a hard time saying that word. I think it's Swarovski. Thank you. Crystals (laughs) and little black dresses. This girl has a lot of grit, and she's not going anywhere. Was this redemption in many ways for you? It just felt like this is where I belonged and I knew that I wanted to get back to that stage and it um, 
I remember leaving the courts and it was probably, it was past midnight at the time when I did the press conference after and I got back to the hotel room and I was, I was in the room by 1 a.m., had to go through a little massage, um, sports massage, a few other things. So you end up going to bed at like 3 a.m., but I just, I didn't want to sleep. Like I didn't want that evening or that feeling to end. I didn't want to start another day because I felt like I had so many of those, um, you know, match memories to relive still. You um, made it to the fourth round. You lost to Anastasia Sevastova of Latvia in three sets. I, I, I know you're uber competitive, duh, understatement <laughs> of the century, but how upset were you with that loss and, and the fact that you weren't going to go on? Yeah, I certainly don't leave that court and say, oh, I'm okay with this. Definitely not. And you always have these expectations from yourself because you know what you're capable of. You know what you've, the tennis that you've produced there over the years and you know you can and you know everyone's watching and you want to. And so it adds to that, that extra pressure, which I love. But I wasn't, I wasn't satisfied and I shouldn't be. Like that's, I shouldn't be satisfied with a fourth round exit. And I guess before a match, you must envision what, I don't know if you do this, but I would if I were you, what it would be <laughs> like if you won. You know, what that moment would right. feel like yeah. because it gives you something to aspire to. And so when it doesn't happen, you really have to kind of do, do. A, a serious like a attitude form of adjustment. Visualization. Yeah. Yeah. I, d- I definitely do that. I prefer that to like setting certain goals for myself. I think it's just, it's not about a, a particular ending. Like that's not the way that I look at things, but I certainly visualize what success feels like to me. And I, I see it and I understand it and I feel it. Um, I think that's really important. And what does it feel like for you when you visualize it? What good. do you see though? What do you see? Do you see, uh, you know, I mean, do you imagine something so, in your mind's eye? Yeah. I think for me, ha- happiness is really internal. It's not something that is most of the time seen in photographs or told in words. I think there's something much deeper. It's not something that anyone will be able to say, oh, well, now I saw that, that she was happy. Of course, like the emotion of winning that match, that was amazing and that was happiness and that brought so much joy. I mean, I think you you can't act that out. Like That's, that's the way I really felt in that moment. Let, let's talk about something that I know you've been asked about a lot and uh, certainly by journalists as you've been out promoting your book. Um, and it's it's really what you start off with mm-hmm. in your prologue. The first sentence is, at some point toward the end of the 2016 Australian Open, a nurse asked me to pee in a cup. That's a good opening I never, line, isn't it? That <laughs> never thought gets that your my, attention. my first memoir would start with the words pee and a cup. <laughs> but but, but I, of course, of course the, that leads to the whole story uh, of your suspension and why you were taking meldonium, which right. has the trade name of, of meldronate, right. on a daily basis for, for 10 years. It was put on the banned substance list in 2000. 15 September. And when that ban went into effect in January, of course, you tested positive. Right. You know, in preparing for this interview, I spoke with Billie Jean King, who really admires you deeply. And she said, quote, you know, I'm still scratching my head over this. I just don't understand how this could happen. She described you, Maria, as someone extremely, exceedingly professional and exceedingly Mm -hmm. precise. And I know you've talked about this, but Billie Jean King still doesn't get it. So can you help her and us out and explain <laughs> explain how this happened? Um, in so many ways, if I would, if it would feel like I would be going backwards and, and starting from, 
from scratch. And I, it's still a question that I occasionally do ask myself. And I asked myself for a long period of time after I received that notice. It wasn't, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to rewind. And I, I am, I'm very well, you much. You do talk about it though in the I book. I do. And, but I, I am someone that wants to learn from my mistakes. But in this situation, um, when you're taking something legally for numerous amount of years, that is a common supplement in Russia used by thousands of people, including my grandmother, which is, I mean, I I can laugh about it now. It wasn't funny at the time, but it's just such an odd and a very odd thing that it all of a sudden becomes banned and I'm not aware of it and no one around me, whether it's myself, my team, the organizations, let me know. I think what was really frustrating was it could have been avoided so easily if I would have known. You know, it it does seem surprising, though. By all accounts, you have this incredible team Mm. around you that are, you know, people focused on your success as a professional athlete. And it does beg the question, I mean, did somebody literally drop the ball on this? And if so... A, who was responsible, because you contend that your agents and trainers missed Mm. the various ITF notifications of this being added to the banned substance list. And if, in fact, someone did drop the ball, were there any repercussions for Mm. that? And Because I know you kept your entire team around. I think the biggest biggest problem was this sense of complacency in a system that I had for a long time. And I start that by saying from my end as well, because as I said from the very beginning, as an athlete, you take responsibility. It's not your coach. It's not, it's not a manager. It's not your, your parents. It's your, it's your career. It's your life. It's your body. And yeah. I was also interested in the fact that you didn't disclose this because mm. I talked to some other players. I, we worked very hard preparing for right. this interview. And right. one professional player said, you know, their disclosure forms. Right. And he said, I'm so paranoid, or I was so paranoid right. when I played, that I would even put vitamin C right. on that on that list. Right. And and so why didn't you just write it right. down and claim a therapeutic exemption? Yeah, so for, for all the years that I was doing these forms, I was writing down, as it said in the instructions, the, the medicines or supplements that you were supposed to write down for the past seven days. So everything that I was taking continuously every single day for the past seven days, I would write down. And this was not something that I took every single day. So I know one of the benefits is increased exercise cardiovascular capacity. Now that you're not taking it, Mm. did you notice any ill effects on your performance? Because at at one point you said you would look for a substitute, a replacement Mm. that wasn't on the banned list. Did you find that replacement? I, I, I constantly have to get checkups. I constantly have to go to the doctor um, I get regular EKGs a lot more than than other people would. Um, as you can imagine, I'm very detail-oriented after this happened. And and so did you find a replacement? Um, it's something that I don't want to talk about. It's just not something, when we speak about doctors, I think it will open up more conversation and more questions. And I think from the very beginning, I think it's important, um, you know, to speak about what had happened openly and honestly and to move on from it. Let, let's talk about your time away from tennis, that 15 months mm-hmm. uh, down from the original two-year verdict allowed you to do some things that you hadn't done before. Right. I think you must have had a really interesting uh, experience. You 
took summer classes at Harvard Business School. You interned for a few days at the MBA. You followed around uh, Commissioner Adam Silver through his daily activities. You wrote this book. Why did you want to do some of those things? I think because it was the first time really in my career where I had time. It just gave me time. It gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do to grow as a person um, and also to take my mind off of what was going on. I went to school for a few weeks and just to be in an environment with people that didn't really care about my problems, had problems of their own, but we all had a similar understanding of why we were there. We wanted to learn. Um, doing the internships, um, you know, as you said, Adam Silver, I've always admired his work, uh, just his professionalism and, and leadership. And I think the NBA has done, uh, out of all sports, is just an incredible showcase of putting athletes and teams and, and business together and creating um, a great product. So I wanted to learn from him. I went to Nike for a few days in Portland, just shadowed a few people. So it was a mix of things. But more importantly, it gave me a chance to to be around the people that I wanted that I care about and that I wanted to be with. During that period of time, you still trained. When I talked to Billie Jean, she said, I I like to drop Billie Jean King's name, like (laughs) Billie Jean and I, but we're like that. Well, we should. I mean, she's (laughs) she's incredible, isn't she? she really is. She's, yeah, she's an amazing woman. But she talked about how tough it was to go back and, and to play at the U.S. Open after not playing competitive tennis or, you know, that kind of tennis for that period of time. It's hard. Yeah, it's the one thing is you can never replicate a competitive match. It's just not you can do all the training in the world. And I, I spent time doing yoga and boxing and hiking and all the things I really didn't have time for because my training was very different from that. And all of a sudden I find myself in an indoor cycling class with music. I was like, oh, this is, this is new. (laughs) Yes, it's very popular. I was like, wow, I didn't know that (laughs) training could be like dancing and fun. (laughs) And then you go in a class and it's like, you go from zero to like waking up like coffee in hand. A lot of women would walk in with their coffees and then all of a sudden their heart rate's like 160. I was like, wait, where's the warm up? (laughs) I was like, I'm like thinking, wait, they're going to hurt themselves. Um, but it was very actually impressive. I gained this whole new appreciation of this like work, active family balance that people have. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to work out for a living. And while I was doing these internships and studying, I knew that I had to like at least be in somewhat of a good shape when I would come back. Let's talk about your workout routine because you mentioned, I mean, and I watched a documentary about you that some friends of mine did, Lisa and Nancy Lacks, and they're great. And, uh, you know, it showed you working out, and I thought, God, how how do you do that day in and day out? Take us through sort of quickly your routine and what you do and how you mix it up. Yeah. It really depends on whether I'm getting ready for a tournament or if I'm in the off-season or if I'm in a a time and place where I just need to maintain. Um, the off season is probably the toughest training block of the year for me. And it just, it's physical, it's grueling, it's long hours. I do, I spend probably three hours in the gym and on the track. Um, but a lot of the focus and what I've tried to focus on is be very tennis specific because you can't replicate, and I don't know what it's like in other sports, but you really can't replicate tennis in any other environment. So how many hours would you say you spend a day? Like five to six. Oh, God. Yeah. That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 
Do you, do, I mean, do you ever hate I will say, though, it, it, it is a lot better, as I've, I've been doing this book tour in the last couple of days, that's been like 15-hour days. I've, <laughs> I was like, I'd rather play tennis for 12. <laughs> I'd rather, like, make me run side to side for 12 hours. Like, I don't know, there's just something about talking endlessly that's very difficult. Like, I'd rather just be playing and focused and running and physical because it's just what I know best. We finished our first set, so we're going to take a quick break. I'll be back with Maria Sharapova to talk more tennis and even a little Vladimir Putin. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most, there's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining, we've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Now back to my conversation with Maria Sharapova. You know, I know that you write uh, in your book that you were really never into making friends in in the world of tennis. And in fact, you called friendships among competitors tour friendships Mm. and a phony show for the press. Mm. Do you ever feel as if, Maria, you missed out or is that just not your jam to kind of get to know people? I'm so hip, aren't I? <laughs> to get to know, you know I know. They, I saw you using Instagram before we went on here. I was like, I'm really impressed with your skills. You can't teach an old dog <laughs> new trick. But, I mean, do you feel in a way that, gosh, when you see someone like, like Sloan and Madison yeah. embracing and having that extraordinary bond, yeah. do you feel like, gee, I wish I could have had that in some ways? Yeah, I, I respect that. It's not the way that I grew up because I... I came to America as an immigrant and I spent the first many years being, you know, someone at the academy that was much younger than everyone else, that was really on a different mission than everyone else, um, that weren't as competitive, that weren't um, as driven as I was, had different goals and visions for their lives. And, um, and I was always someone that was beating girls and boys that were older than I was. So 
in a way they didn't like me for that. And I felt that. <laughs> I felt that energy. And, um, and I wanted to, to beat them even more. And so I think... Do you lose your edge a little when you... Do, do you ever feel like you lose your edge if you get too close to your competitors? Yeah, I do. I really do. And I think I speak a lot about that in, in the book. You know, I didn't have any siblings. It was just me. And I wasn't around my parents very often the first few years in America. So it was really me and the tennis racket and the ball and the coaches that were around me trying to make me a better tennis player. So it was an absolutely lonely time. And I had to, I had to deal with that. And I had to isolate. Like, I really did feel isolated from, from the rest you know, a lot of attention has been given to some of the stuff that you wrote about Serena, mm-hmm. um, who's been out of tennis herself for a few months. She just had a baby girl named Alexis. So mazel, mazel, Serena. I hear here at the 92nd Street Y, say mazel. Um, so your record against her is two wins and 19 losses, but uh, you beat her in the Wimbledon finals in July of 2004, of course, as you remember. You were just 17 years old at the time. It was your first Grand Slam. And in the book, you write about hearing, quote, guttural sobs when you came to the locker room after the award ceremony. Serena Williams was bawling, and she didn't see you, but you write that she knew you were there. And you continue. I'm going to read an excerpt. Mm-hmm. I think Serena hated me for being the skinny kid who beat her against all odds at Wimbledon. I think she hated me for taking something that she believed belonged to her. I think she hated me for seeing her at her lowest moment. But mostly, I think she hated me for seeing her cry. She's never forgiven me for it, end quote. Now, not long after the tournament, you also write, someone told you they heard Serena say, quote, I will never lose to that little bitch again. So, which <laughs> is very much true. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess she got her wit. <laughs> so, but why? Why do you think it was important for you to include that in your book? Because I know you've come under yeah. some criticism in the things that you've written about her. Right. Well, I think it was important to share my experiences playing against her. And I've read a lot of memoirs written by athletes, and there are many instances where they don't speak about their rivals and they don't speak about the matchups. And I think it would have been very odd if I did not include Serena in my book because, I mean, that is who I faced in my first Grand Slam final. And it didn't even begin there as I... As I start before, it, it began as a 13-year-old girl practicing at the Nick Balateri Academy and really witnessing her presence with her sister and her father practicing in front of hundreds of kids that were looking at her, um, watching her every move, seeing her focus and her drive and, and what she was able to, to do on the tennis court. I mean, I, I was watching like the next 25 years of my life, like just in front of my eyes, Later to find out that just in a few years, in four years, almost as if someone took me and put me in, the, in my television screen and said, there you are, you're going to be facing Serena Williams, and it's the Wimbledon final. And I didn't belong in that situation. I wasn't nearly ready to, to compete against her at that stage. It was, it was really a miracle that I found myself playing against her then. And so when describing Serena... Um, and describing her physicality and how intimidating um, she was across the net, this is coming from someone that is 
17 years old, that was not as tall as I am today, that was far from being strong or experienced or ready to be in that position, and yet finding a way to win and also noticing how I was the one that had nothing to lose in that match and noticing that she had all the pressure to win that match, where it actually should be the other way around. I mean, she's already accomplished. She's a two-time defending champion at Wimbledon that year. She's done it. She's been there. I'm the one that has to prove myself. And yet, I find myself in a position where I feel that there was a lot more on the line for her. So it was important to share that. And the, and the moment that I, I speak about in the locker room, I mean, that's it's an intimate moment that we share. It's an individual sport toward the end of a tournament. I mean, we're all sharing a locker room together. I mean, you could be facing an opponent and have a locker room that's right next to each other. You're getting ready, you're changed, and in an hour you're supposed to go out and compete against each other and beat each other. And then it's the moment after. We feel the energy between each other. Like, we feel that it's such a quiet moment that it's just us, and yet there are thousands of people waiting for our arrival on the court. It's so personal, though, and so private. Do you think if, if Serena had written a memoir and... I think she has written. It, well, it, yeah. or if she had talked about that or if she had said that she heard you cry. Mm. Um, do you think you would have felt, gee, that's a little intrusive? Or do you think you would have understood her sharing that? I think if I wanted to write a memoir, and when I sat down to write this book, um, and as I said, I've read many memoirs of athletes, it was important for me to be open and honest about the way that I felt and the way that I, I mean, I certainly felt the momentum shift in her attitude, the way that she carried herself playing against me following that final. There's no no doubt it about it. very different. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I absolutely feel like she she plays like there's a chip on her shoulder. Yeah, I mean, the way that she's able to raise her level, the the confidence with which she portrays and plays, and I mean, it's not me. I don't want to single myself out. You see that continuously. I mean, she's won the number of Grand Slams, she's won in, in a league of her own. Um, but ultimately, yeah, there's definitely a, a level that's um, that's much higher. So, 13 years later, would you say you like Serena Williams? I respect Serena. Okay. Let's let's talk about another. I mean, how part. can I say that I like someone that's beaten me nineteen times? <laughs> like, I mean, that would be so, so silly. <laughs> okay. Like, no, don't you agree? <laughs> I don't know. I guess that would be hard. I mean, I'm super competitive too, yeah, so yeah. it's hard for me to like people like I'm competitive with. Yeah. On the other hand, um... I think, for, like to me, respect is a very important word because I, as an athlete, I've been able to meet very famous, accomplished individuals in different fields, and the understanding that I have with with athletes is very different. It's on a very different level because you really, from a physical, from an emotional point of view, you really understand what it takes, and. That's why I use the word respect when I speak about Serena, because I know I know how much it takes. I know how much she had to work in her upbringing without coming from any money, with having a tough childhood and making it, going against adversity 
and being in a position of where she is now, I think, I mean, it would be very wrong for me to sit here and say that I have no respect for her. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be in a position of her power, to be as successful, to be known around the world, and all the intangibles that come with being a professional athlete. So from that point of view, there's a, a tremendous amount of respect. But that, that doesn't make headlines, so... I'm curious. I mean, it's funny when you watch players sort of shake hands and you wonder what's really going through their heads. And because you are pretty myopic and focused on your tennis and haven't built a lot of friendships among other players, Mm -hmm. have you ever had an occasion to chat with her about anything? We've talked about a few different things and very random subjects kind of depend on which time of our career it was. And I mean, there was a a point in time where she, where I was out with injury for a long time, she was playing and then she was out following. So there was a big chunk of time where we didn't face against each other and we didn't see each other a lot of the time, but we would, I mean, we would have friendly conversations in the locker room saying hello and I mean, there's, we don't pass by each other very often. And we, I mean, we usually, we practice, we play our match, we get our stuff. It's not like there's a, you know, community party in there where you, <laughs> you, where you hang out. I mean, you only spend like 10, 15 minutes at a time in a locker room. So, But it was cordial. I mean, hi. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But not, no. No, there's never a time where we, we don't say hello to each other. Yeah. Let's, let's go back and talk about your game a little bit more. I know in the book you talk about your greatest skill being probably my will, I will not quit, and, and, and you hate losing. And you also say your defining characteristic is that you're a fighter. You've had this incredible career. You have won five slams, including two French Opens, along with one Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australian title, and you've won 35 WTA titles and four ITF titles. John McEnroe called you one of the best the sport has ever seen, which is high praise coming from him. So what are your biggest strengths and weaknesses? <laughs> What's so funny? No, that just that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming what, from him. <laughs> what, do, you li- do you like John McEnroe? I do. I think he's, yeah. I mean, yeah, I do. No, I, I, I very Especially, much do. <laughs> you like him even more now that you're reminded of that. But what, no, I do very much. What I would do. you say are your greatest strengths and weaknesses out on the court? Um, I think my strengths are the things that are not measured and then that are not numbered. And I always joke with my coach about this. Um, I always tell him, like, if you take me to the gym, if you take all the players in the draw, take us to the gym and make us run on the treadmill or do like a competition with squats or give us weights, I can guarantee you I would be on the bottom of each list. Like, I did not grow up being the fastest or the strongest um, or the quickest mover around the court. But there were other intangibles that made me the player that I became. And I think it was an understanding of those weaknesses and knowing what I had to do and that I could improve them, that if I worked harder, that if I set my mind on those weaknesses, that I could get better. I knew that there were players that, could have been more talented than me, that could have been faster than me, that if that outnumbered me. But all that, that, that sometimes doesn't matter. You go out into the match and you don't need to be better than all the 120 players in the draw. It's only a matter of who's, who you're playing against across the net that you have to be better than them. And so I think that's when I speak about will um, and the mindset that I, that I had. I think that's what separated me from a lot of the players is that I realized that 
it was okay not to be the best at all those other things. It well, was, when you talk about weaknesses, like, is there something specific that you try to compensate for that you've had to really work on to improve yeah. through the years? I mean, like moving forward, you know, getting myself to the net, finishing the point off at the net, um, being at the net was not something that I practiced and, and my coaches didn't really include in the drills that I was doing for some of the reasons. I worked on other parts of my game, but never really coming forward to the net. And so that's something that I actually later in my career, like adding variety, drop shots and lobs um, and things like that is something that I, I feel like I've begun to work on sort of in my mid-20s, I guess. Let's talk about uh, your grunting, which is really, it's, it's, it's less grunting and more singing, I think. I think you kind of go, Is that? <laughs> right? Is that what you do? You go, <laughs> It's not, <laughs> it's, <laughs> What is that about? <laughs> You're making it sound a lot better than it is. <laughs> I think you do. Don't you think? I mean, didn't I say did, it's kind of a little singing thing, right? You do it. How do you think you sound? Oh, I, I don't even want to try. <laughs> I, I think you did such a great job. You make me look really good doing that. So oh, I'll just, thank uh, you. All right, good. No, I. Um, it's such an interesting thing that when you do something and you start from a very young age and that you continue doing that you don't think twice about, but then you go into a press conference and then you get asked about it a majority of the time, especially when I first came on tour. It's not a question that I get asked a lot about now, but um, so thank, thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> <You're welcome>. <laughs> <laughs> but a majority of the time it's when you go to England and they, they somehow get out these measuring sticks of how loud you are. And I was like, how do you... I was like, they like compare me to an airplane. I was like, <laughs> like how can I take you seriously? You're a journalist. <laughs> I mean, that's when you just have to shake your head. But. <laughs> but but it has become pretty controversial. I know that in 2009, Martina Navratilova said grunting has reached an unacceptable level. It's cheating, pure and simple. And I thought it was interesting that I saw a piece at the Nick Boletari uh, camp that they're starting to teach kids breathing techniques to avoid grunting. Right. So do you think we're going to see a decrease in the future? And and I know you think people shouldn't make a big, big deal. But <laughs> you know, when some... I retire, I mean, I hope, they, <laughs> I hope they don't implement that rule while I play. <laughs> you know, but but I think for some people, they do find it. Uh, other players right. find it aggravating. I think a lot of players are, are used to it by now when I play against them because I've been, feel like I've been around for many years and they know what to expect. But I don't know if it's going to change. Not by some of the matches that I've, I've seen recently. I don't, I don't know if it's going away anytime soon. We've got a lot of good questions from the audience, a lot of big tennis fans here. What a shock. But um, before, we, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your dad, because he brought you here uh, mm -hmm. from Russia when you were just six years old. Right. I think Martina Navratilova discovered you in some ways, or said anyway, yeah, this, she did. This, this little girl is good. Yeah. You need to get her to America, yeah, right? Yes. So at five years old, I attended a, a tennis clinic and my father took me to Moscow. We took a flight to Moscow from Sochi where we were living and, and she spotted me. There were a couple hundred kids out there and Looking back at that moment, I, I, I don't understand or I can't understand. I haven't actually asked her this question, but it's like, what do you see in a five-year-old? At five years old, I mean, they're, the racket's usually bigger than they are. Like, the balls are, you know, all over the place. And, 
And she told my father that I had an opportunity to be a great tennis player. And so... Think how that changed the trajectory of your life because he took her seriously. He really did. And one of the things I say in the book and, and is we came across these people in our lives that literally shaped our path and they were complete strangers to us. Like we... We knew maybe knew of them, such as Martina, or we didn't know them at all. And, you know, when you're young, they say you have to stay away from strangers. But it's the strangers that really shaped our beginnings and that led me to where I went. Your dad um, was your coach uh, for a long time and manager and, of course, your father. Um, what? Tell me about those early years with your dad. And your mom stayed behind in yeah. Russia yes. um, initially. So what was that like for for you and how did that, it must have really forged an extraordinary relationship between the two of you. It really was. It was a special bond and I've come to appreciate it and understand it as I've gotten a little bit older. Um, More so because you hear a lot about an athlete and the relationship between an athlete and their parents and how, you know, when you get older, you want to distance yourself because there's so much dedication and so much influence coming from the parents. And as I look back at my experience with my father, especially those first few years in America, I, the decisions that he made were, were to make my dream come true. And he didn't know much about tennis, but he guided me in all these different directions that led me to where I am. And I don't know, I, I think I sometimes ask, like, why he had, they had a normal life and back home and they could have, you know, they didn't have a lot of money he came to America with $700. He almost had to not believe in this crazy story and not believe in this crazy dream. He just had to go with it. It's almost like he had to be a little bit stupid in order to live this dream. Um, I think he, he should write a book of his own. I mean, I, I mean, I know one would read it probably, but <laughs> poor dad. Don't say dad. that. Don't say that. <laughs> poor but he's dad. Still, and he's still part of your team. Very much. Yeah, very much so. I, after I won my third Grand Slam, I think there's just, there's a part of me that was like, I want to feel what it would be like to do this on my own. You know, I've had my father along this, this whole ride and... I don't know, I thought it was important to have a coach, to not have my dad around, even though he still calls my coach every single day. I mean, my coach's phone bill is like, <laughs> I'm like, send me the check. <laughs> but he's, um, he's still very much involved. So I'm going to do some audience questions and kind of intersperse them with okay. a few more that I've come up with. But one person wants to know, between the point when you look away from the player and say something to yourself, what do you say? Ooh, when I look at myself. So, like, let's say you're, you know, you 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 play a point, okay. and probably I think because I have this little routine where I go back and like I look like a robot. I go back, I like look at my strings and I fiddle with them, and then I go back to <laughs> I go back to serve. <laughs> so, well, it depends on the mat. I mean, it depends on the situation of the match. And the reason I developed that sort of habit is because I would. Like my attention span was short, so I'd be looking around and I wouldn't have focus. And so from a young age, I was like, okay, I need to focus on something. So it ended up being my strings. And I just started this little walk back and developed into a routine. So, but do you say something like, I can't believe I did that. I'm an idiot or they're oh, an idiot. I, or... Yeah, I use worse words than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> if you could, okay, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 17-year-old self right after your first Grand Slam win? It's never going to be perfect. And that, that victory, it seemed like everything was perfect. 
Um, it seemed like a fairy tale, but none of it is. There's certainly, it's a journey. A lot of people saw my victory and said it was an overnight success, but that takes hours and days and weeks and years to develop. And, and it takes just as long to get your next one and the next one, whether that's a grand slam, whether it's another ambition that you have. So, you know, it's, it's not always rainbows and butterflies is what I'll tell myself. Well, that was a nice, profound answer, so I want to ask you a shallow question to follow up. Let's talk about your love life for a second. <laughs> Thank you. I like how we um, took that, that <laughs> interesting shortcut. <laughs> what sort of man are you attracted to? This just turned into a Cosmo questionnaire. <laughs> but um, I know you dated a number of professional athletes, uh, like Grigor Dimitrov. De- is that, de- I, I'm, I'm pronouncing these names correctly. No, that's correct. correct. Okay, yeah. Sasha Vujicic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, NBA player for the LA Lakers and a few other teams. Andy Roddick, apparently. Charlie Eversall, the son of Dick Eversall, who I know from NBC Sports. Adam Levine. Do we want to just go? I mean, should we just go through the whole list? I mean, <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, who are, like, who are I, these? Can we stop this? <laughs> who was the biggest jerk They of the don't group? deserve this credit. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No, that's not true. So no. I was going to ask they you. They were the, all amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's I, why I, I'm not with them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little cheesy asking this, but are, are you seeing anyone now? And not that, consistently. That's a, that's a question from my husband, by the way, which makes me a little worried. <laughs> but uh, no. <laughs> I am not seeing anyone um, consistently. But you're dating, having fun? Uh, yeah. Do you have time yeah. to date? I did. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And, then, and then I packed my bags in April and was like, see you. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> that he, didn't go well. He also wanted to know if you date Jewish men. I have. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. That's good. Why? Okay. Do, is, is someone available? Does no, your husband no, no, know no. someone? No, that's... no. Well, he does know some people, but we can okay. talk about that later. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> I mean, we might as well continue on that. Since <laughs> it sounds like your husband wants to set me up. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. I, ho- I hope that's why he's so curious. I knew we were like... <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so let's, let's... I was talk. only trying to sell a few books, and now I'm going to have a boyfriend. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're not so bad. Um, so let me, before I get to a couple of more audience questions, I know that you also wrote that you learned early on after signing on with Nike at age 11 that yes. tennis is a business as much as a right. sport. And I wanted to share this because I thought this was interesting. Until last year, you were the highest paid female athlete for more than a decade straight, raking in $285 million in commercial endorsements. See, now you're going to get a lot of dates. <laughs> oh you've got even. Suddenly, you just got even more popular. But you know, um, I, I feel like calling my financial manager right now and saying, where, where is that money? <laughs> where is this money that everyone is reporting on? <laughs> but clearly, you know, you're, you're interested in business, and you're also very entrepreneurial. You, you started a premium candy line called Sugar Pova in 2012. So what direction do you see mm. yourself going after tennis yeah. when you're when you're through with your tennis career. Yeah, business is definitely something that I enjoy learning about, but more so about being um, being a part of things that I'm passionate about. And from a business perspective, um, while starting my own business, I, 
you know, I, I didn't know much about the food industry. I didn't know much about sweets, but I hired people around me to really, to help me understand, to grow my business. I mean, although I was the one that was paying the checks, I wanted to gain information from them. And so, you know, there's, there are elements of, of learning and growth. And as I said, um, I'm still only 30 years old. And although I've been successful because I've done what I've done on the court, there's still a lot of potential for growth for me. Like I, I really believe that you can be a better, you know, better business person. You can be a better leader and all those things. Seems like you're interested in fashion. You're definitely very active on social media. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of Instagram followers. I follow you. And um, <clears throat> given sort of the, and, and your interest in it and, in business, it sounds to me you might have the makings of a, of a quote-unquote lifestyle brand. You know, somebody who talks about a lot of different things and wellness yeah. and fashion, yeah. et cetera. We've seen sort of people emerge in that space. Is that something that interests you? Yeah. I've always had a difficult connection with the word brand because it's a very, I don't know what you feel about the word brand, but it feels very like corporate and robotic and not very human to me. And it's very much the opposite of what I would want to portray. And I mean, I think a lot of, you know, branding and marketing and those, those tool words, um, they stem from decisions, like decisions on where you see yourself, what you want to do. Fortunately, I've been in a position where I can make those decisions of who I want to associate myself with, but that doesn't necessarily create my name into a brand. It's not the way that I see it. I know it's the way that it's portrayed, but the word itself is, I don't know, I don't feel great about it. Okay. Um, for, here's another audience question. For us young tennis players, do you have a message for us that you wish you knew when you were a kid? Besides don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> really? You wouldn't tell them that? No, I'm kidding. No, sometimes I... Occasionally, I feel like that. I get off the court and I've lost a tough match and it's just, it's brutal and that's what I think. But then I get up the next day and I get back on the court and I'm like, I want to continue doing this and I want to be great. But um, I think there comes in a point in, in our lives where we really have to dedicate ourselves if we're being, if we want to get to that next level and we want to dedicate ourselves to that one thing that we do. The one thing I noticed when I came to the United States were the amazing ability to have opportunities, which really helped me. But it's also a little bit of a distraction because you have you have a chance to be okay at one thing, to be good at something, to be social in another thing. And ultimately, if you have a real goal of where you want to go in one particular area, whether it's a sport or finance or another job and opportunity, ultimately, you've got to make a decision on what it is that you love and what it is you want to grow with. Because it requires ridiculous... It takes, commitment. it takes commitment and it, and it, and real, and real repetition, no matter what it is. So you better love it. Well, it was first, interesting. I think it starts with finding something that you love and maybe look, we, we all grow out of it as well. Like we, we have a passion for it and, and there's something that happens within the process and we lose that, that touch and we lose that feel and love for what we were doing. But you still love tennis. I interviewed Andre Agassi when he wrote his book, and I know you read it after you yeah. wrote yours. Were you afraid that I didn't want? I, I didn't want other memoirs to influence my, I guess my writing or my ideas or the way that I wanted um, my thoughts to be on paper. But he told me that he hated tennis. Yeah. That um, you know that he was playing it from such an early age that he started to hate it. Yeah. But you never hated it. 
I never hated the game of tennis. I think there are definitely there are moments where there are a lot of things that come with tennis that I don't necessarily like. Hate is a very strong word, and um, the tennis aspect, like the the feeling of being good and feeling like you can be better. I don't know. I've always said this, and like as a woman, it's just a very nice feeling, and um, and I love that. Well, we're almost out of time, but we have, we're going to do a quick lightning round because I thought it would be fun. Um, oh, so oh, I'm going to just, scares me. I, yeah, I know. So I'm just going to name some people and you can just tell me what it instantly comes to your head. Okay. Okay. Let's, uh-oh. So. This is scary. <laughs> Billie Jean King. Oh, legend. Martina Navratilova. Inspirational to me. Venus Williams. A pioneer for our sport, for the fight for equality. Roger Federer. Oh, a legend. Um, just full of class, elegance. Rafa Nadal. Um, grit. Grit and desire and never stops fighting. My husband didn't think I should ask this, but I what? thought you were going to say your husband. That is getting a lot of, you're getting a lot of shout outs. I don't know where you I are. I was like, but... this is getting awkward. He's here. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, he didn't think I should ask this, but I'm curious. I'm fascinated by Nadal's a... ritual. I mean, Which I'm fascinated. Which is what? 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 <laughs> I wanted you to tell me what it is. You know what it is. No, you tell me. It's, it's his pulling and touching and the hair and the... <laughs> what, what, when you see, I mean, do a lot of players have these sort of Don't rituals? Don't you think that's like a superstition? Superstition? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Have you ever asked him about it? <laughs> Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> if, I, if I'm going to have a conversation with Rafael Nadal, I don't think I'm going to ask him why he does that with his shorts. Okay. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, Jim, Jimmy Connors. I mean, would you? I might, actually. No, it you be, wouldn't. It would not be my first thing out of the gate, but that I would probably get honest. to it. <laughs> okay. I mean, how long of a conversation are you expecting to have with if him? I'm talking to him. I'm going to talk to him for a good long time. Oh. Yeah. Okay. okay, so Jimmy Connors. Oh, um, he was your I coach to, for a time, he wa- for a short period of time, <laughs> and it didn't work Which out. I, it didn't work out. Um, he was an interesting character and someone that I admired. No, I really don't laugh because I, I, I mean it in a very genuine That's way. That's it. It's so sincere. <laughs> um, he, I loved listening to him speak, and I still do. I think. Um, I was like mesmerized by his presence. Like I didn't want to miss a ball. I love listening to every word he said. Um, so inspirational. When he became my my only coach was when I realized that it just wasn't a good fit. But from the things that he said, just based on his experience, um, to me that was valuable. John McEnroe. Crazy. <laughs> Donald Crazy. Trump. Just thought I'd throw him in. <laughs> Wait, did you, who did you say? Donald Trump, <laughs> the president. I didn't hear you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Real quick. Wait, who's next? Putin? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> actually. He is. Yes, I knew you were going to yeah. say that. Yeah. I just threw myself into that situation, <laughs> didn't I? Um, do I need to answer that? Yeah. You brought it up. I know I did. Um <laughs> What do I think of him? Um, I see him, I think, as everyone else, as as a character almost from a distance that um, 
although I was born in Russia and spent the first few years of my life there, I, I feel like everything I know about the country, about its history, is very much from afar. And so I think I see it also as an audience, you know, as this character that is being portrayed by, by everyone else without knowing much. And last name, Maria Sharapova. Mm. I mean, your husband told me to say unstoppable. Um, like, <laughs> as we did a little, little 60-second interview for, um, for her Instagram, and, and the one of, that was one of the last questions. And he's like, you didn't say unstoppable. And I was like, okay, I'll say it next time. <laughs> so, so? Unstoppable. <laughs> well, Maria Sharapova, it was so fun to talk to you. That's it for us in 2017. May old acquaintance be forgot and ever brought to mind. <laughs> Something like that. Thanks so much to the team behind this podcast. Gianna Palmer, our producer. Jared O'Connell, our audio engineer. Nora Ritchie, our production assistant. Allison Bresnick, who captains our social media ship. Well done, Captain. And Emily Bina contributes to the pod from her esteemed post at Katie Kirk Media. Also, Beth Damas for all her help in making sure that I get to the studio on time. Brian and I are the show's executive producers. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. But last but not least, thank you very much to my friends, and they are my friends, at the 92nd Street Y. Carrie, my daughter, went to preschool there, and the Y is a great New York institution. But thank you all for hosting and recording this conversation. Please feel free to email us with your guest ideas. Brian and I would love to hear from you, and so would Gianna and Jarrett and the rest of the aforementioned crew. You can ask questions. You can give us feedback at comments at currickpodcast.com, or please leave us a voicemail at 929 224 4637. You can find Brian on Twitter at GoldsmithB. And if you search Katie Couric, I am everywhere on social media, people. So I'm very excited for what the new year has in store for our podcast. We have a lot of great guests and even some surprises in store for you. We've been working very hard behind the scenes to make sure we kick off 2018 in style. Until then, happy new year, everybody. And we'll see you next year. Who do you talk to about how you're feeling? Your friends, your family? How about your neighbors? Fred Rogers encouraged us to pay attention to how we're feeling, to how other people are feeling too. He believed that talking about our feelings would help us make sense of the world. I'm Carvel Wallace. And I don't know about you, but I'm having trouble making sense of the world these days. Join me for Finding Fred, a new podcast about the lessons of Fred Rogers. Check out Finding Fred on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.